Hello, and welcome to the Sensi Lab Creative AI Podcast, Episode 5. Uh, my name is John McCormack. I'm the director of Sensi Lab, and joining me at the console today, as always, physicist, not former physicist, and uh, PhD researcher Nina Radzic. Hey, Nina, how hey. are you? Good, good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Good. Just back from a big trip overseas. So, if you missed us for a couple of weeks, the reason is because I was away, and we were going to try and do something from the conferences that I was at, but it didn't work out. So, but here we are. Yeah. And we're joined today, we've got a very special guest, uh, Hannah Kosmeyer from Monash Mata, and she works in the XYX Lab and the Wonder Lab. She's a design researcher and former neuroscientist. That's right. Hello. Welcome, Hannah. Thank, Thank you, you for much. coming in. Yeah. No problem. Happy to be here. Um, and today's topic is, we've titled it Bias in AI, and we might also talk a little bit about surveillance. We'll see how things go. But I think probably everyone's aware that um, in recent years, as AI has become you know, much more public and much more um, in the lives of everyday people that there's been a lot of cases of bias that have been reported. So Hannah, maybe can you tell us a couple of the sort of famous, more famous cases about bias and what their impact potentially could be? So I mean, I know there's one with, uh, there's a famous one with Google identifying um, mm -hmm. African-Americans as gorillas rather yeah. than people, which is you know, one of the extreme examples. Yeah. But there's plenty of others, right? There are. And I think that's one of the more extreme examples, and rightly so, had a lot of media coverage because mm -hmm. it's um, one of those glitches that really draws attention to what problems that underlying bias can have in these technologies. Another interesting one is that last summer, researchers from Boston University and Microsoft, um, they showed software that was trained on text from Google News, reproduced a lot of these gender biases that we're talking about. For example, they found that when they asked the algorithm trained on that data, to complete this sentence, man is to computer programmer as woman is to X, it replied with homemaker. And I think that really shows some of those biases. <laughs> mm. And, uh, you know, so a lot of the big tech companies have done things like train their AI programs on things like people's resumes or CVs mm -hmm. to try and automate the process so they have to deal with a large number of applicants. And so there's a case both with LinkedIn and Amazon. When they tried to use these AI programs, they heavily favoured male applicants over female applicants, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So we might get into sort of more of the neuroscience and psychological details about what bias is and perhaps the you know, the differences between biases and stereotypes, for mm. example. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit more about your research and the work that you've been doing. You've been collaborating with Nina and Dilpreet from Sensi Lab. That's right. Firstly, tell us about what you're interested in and what, yeah. you're, what you're doing. Yeah, so I, I became interested in bias and um, experimenting a little bit with AI because of my background in neuroscience. And what I basically um, am so fascinated by is how the brain is constantly picking up on patterns or really able to do that. All of the sensory information that's coming through is kind of being unconsciously processed. And there's a lot of really positive things about that. You can get through your day without kind of interrogating and critically analyzing everything you come across. The downside of what, what our brain's really good at doing is kind of the, the implicit bias that you may have in your day-to-day -day life, which is um, no matter how some people might say woke you are or how what kind of social <laughs> justice warrior you might be, you're still going to be shaped by these implicit biases of all of the systems that you're encountering in your day-to-day -day life. Um, and then, of course, the downside of that, too, is if you are someone that maybe is holding dear to some either racist or sexist beliefs, then you also have confirmation bias where mm. you're looking around and when you see examples that match mm. up Positive affirmation. Yeah, with yeah. what you're expecting to see, then it really reinforces that. And so I think since this is something that our brain does really well, and we know that now, there's a lot of neuroscience research out there that is um, showing this, 
we can kind of be looking to technology not just to kind of replicate these patterns, but also to disrupt them a little bit and help us mm. overcome these natural tendencies that our brain has. Mm. Um, and so this project that we've been working on is a continuation of a project I did a few years ago where... It's basically a device that is trained on linguistics research about male and female language. And what we've done is rather than using that algorithm to predict the the gender of the person speaking, we're using it as something that can be used in real time in your natural conversations that you're having. And so this algorithm is me- measuring kind of stereotypical male speech and stereotypical female speech. It's not necessarily analyzing what you're saying, but the kind of pattern underneath what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a very provocative tool when you're having a conversation with your friend or your family. And we've actually, we've got it in the studio today. So so Nina, tell us a bit about, because you've you've written the code, right? Or you've been... been I think I kind of managed, ended up managing the project. Yeah, Yeah. okay. I got a shout out to Dilbert, who's not here today. He did basically write the entire thing. But basically just using Microsoft being speech-to-text API to just real-time sending requests to basically have the text of what people are saying in conversation. And then we are using a pretty simple algorithm to calculate basically a score of like female. So negative, really far negative is female and then ma- positive is male. Why'd you make female negative? I didn't do that. Oh, okay. so it, it's <laughs> had to be a binary. Had to choose. So it's like a running score for the last like 25 seconds of what we're saying. And it's based off some research. Uh, I think it, it was the, the, in Israel, wasn't yeah, it? It was right. a yeah. couple yeah. of Israeli and researchers. Just like ling- a linguistic, linguistic kind of analysis. Yeah, so just yeah. looking at um, a huge corpus of text, actually, based words. Um, yeah. And from a range of different genres so they had kind of history science Mm. literature and then they coded it based on the author of that text Mm -hmm. so there is a little bit of a change from written language obviously to speech language but that also coded for kind of more informal forms of writing and formal forms of writing so it has a pretty large range of types of language all based on the gender of the author which becomes really interesting okay cool and so we're just looking at the informal words at this point yeah 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 all right, so I will set it off now. Okay, we, so yeah, let's yeah, see how it goes. We've got it. We've got it actually running live. I mean, just to be clear, it's looking at our voices. So because obviously, you know, someone with mm-hmm. a male voice is male, and someone with a female voice is female. Yeah. But it's not looking at things like pitch or the style of the voice. It's just looking purely at the words that the person is saying from a yeah. at a linguistic level. Mm, so I'll do a little demo. Yeah. So yeah. you haven't heard the sound effects yet. Have no, you? I haven't. I'm oh, excited. You, you've <laughs> seen it. Yeah. <laughs> this is quite funny. So this is the uh, woman sound effect. Ooh. And here's the, the man sound effect. Mm. <laughs> that was my choice. That's a good choice. Yeah. I think if ever two sounds, you know, absolutely captured what it is to be male and female, I think yeah. those two do. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That really means a lot to me. We've got a little bit of uh, Nina's bias coming yeah. into the... <laughs> well, that was male. I'm judging you. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about sort of visually and physically how the device works? Is it sort of like an intervention that you put into people's homes and things, right? So, yeah, the original, so the first kind of um, iteration on this project, it was just a little kind of box-like device that had um, an LED light that would shine either green or red, depending on if you were speaking like a man or a woman, and neutral as well. It would kind of show if there was neutral language. And what happened in these tests that we ran was some really interesting conversations about gender we had a lot of people that in the first versions that I knew personally so I'd had previous conversations with them about gender and I kind of knew what to expect I think we had some people 
who had very kind of clear ideas about like this is kind of what men and women are like and they can talk about it in certain ways and not budge on that. But what would happen when I brought this device in is because people right now in the studio were cheating a little bit because we can see the underlying algorithm mm. and what exactly mm-hmm. it's measuring. But in that first version, um, with just the light as the indicator, people were really experimental and they wanted to find out, they wanted to figure out what was going on in that algorithm when they saw an unexpected change. Yeah, how is it working out that I'm speaking in the female voice or a male voice? Exactly, yeah, especially if it didn't sync up with what you were expecting it to show. I used it on my dad, which was so interesting (laughs) um, and really just kind of, for me, revealed a lot of really important things. But um, so what happens when people first looked at it, this was kind of a common thing that happened in all of the testing, is that people would kind of go into a spontaneous... um, um, little poetry about gender where they would start saying <laughs> words about that they thought could trigger a response in the device. So they might say war, guns, sports, and they tried to see if it was making a male change or they would go kind of... Oh, it's female. <laughs> it's female. Yeah, it's female. <laughs> so it's a girl. <laughs> <laughs> unexpected responses happened all the time. And then they would have that moment of confusion of, okay, what is it actually measuring? And then But what was happening in those moments of revealing these words is it was showing the underlying biases and stereotypes that people had about gender. And and rather than it being kind of um, a conversation which can, in my experience, can get pretty heated. And I think we see that in online forums. Mm. We see it in the media. When people talk about gender, there's kind of this automatic either defenses that go up or people become really passionate about the issue and this was a much more playful interaction and it kind of allowed that space to be critical and to interrogate these things without kind of the uh the social fallout oh (laughs) the social fallout that might happen so we're all all getting very conscious of the words that we're using you start to become a little self-conscious but in a productive way i'd say yeah yeah and so what's the work that you're currently doing with the project how has it changed from that original so going forward so in the first version as uh, Nina can attest, my coding skills are not <laughs> amazing. Yes. I mean, it, it worked. It, it worked. worked. It worked. But I had to have a That's lot all you of need. Um, theatrics about kind of hiding the my computer under tables and like making it seem like it was a much more autonomous um, uh, yeah. device than it actually was. And I think so working with Nina is making it a wireless thing so that it can be deployed and people can be documenting kind of without my intervention into that space so we can really just see how people might use it without me sitting there looking over them and seeing Mm. how it goes awesome and how does it work into your like wider project in your phd yeah well (laughs) yeah this is hannah just had a confirmation yesterday and yeah it's pretty intense (laughs) yeah so i've been looking at the intersection of design and gender in a lot of ways and so these are a few different interventions they're all about creating kind of accessible conversations about gender so that people can I guess in a emotionally and physically safely way, talk about these issues. Um, so I'm looking a little bit at public transport spaces as well, and doing some co-design work around inclusive in- inclusivity for women and girls in those spaces. But this is the the version of what happens with the intersection of devices and algorithms and gender, and how we can make the implicit assumptions that are going into that more explicit to interrogate more. I know this is a bit of a sidetrack, but yeah. ha- so how do you make public transport spaces more inclusive for women and girls that's yeah. really interesting it's yeah uh, it's a big project that's yeah. why we've been working on it in xyx lab for a long time we've got um well as long as we've been around um <laughs> and we've been uh doing a lot of co-design with uh where we bring kind of teenage girls police officers city city officials and policymakers together to kind of share stories about women's experiences on public transport which oh mm. <laughs> which often go unreported and so when we have kind of these spaces, we find that the way that those spaces are designed are not necessarily putting 
those experience in the those experiences in <laughs> in kind of the forefront of the design process. So we're kind of shaking up that who the who it's being designed for. Right. So another question I had for you was that you deliberately chose the sort of binary male and female. And yes. of course we live in a time now where there's a, a much greater recognition of yeah. non-binary gender and yep. uh, people who are trans and so on. Mm-hmm. What, how does that fit in? Do you, do you have plans to, to sort of be more inclusive in terms of how you differentiate rather than just binary male and female? Or Yes. Yeah. So I think the reason that the algorithm is provocative is because it's it's an artificial binary. Mm. Like it's it's too basic male and female. And so what this does is it, it gives people the chance to go kind of against it and kind of realize that, well, there may be um, statistical tendencies in these areas. It's not really applying to my situation in this moment as I'm talking. And so I think in terms of our understanding of gender, it's a, it's supposed to be revealing that to us, that there is kind of more to it than just male or female. And in terms of bias in AI, too, there's a lot of um, discussion around trans issues in terms of uh, voice recognition, mm. um, in, which we kind of mentioned earlier, and also facial recognition, just completely misgendering people. And what that does for training the algorithm when we have a different understanding of what a male and a female might be composed of. Mm. So I guess the sort of broader question that this all raises for me too is how people working in AI can be more knowledgeable about the biases that exist. Because it seems, I mean, looking at a couple of the pap- the research papers in this area, I mean, bias is part of human culture. Like yeah. biases help us to learn yeah. things. And some biases are fairly benign. So, yeah. um, you know, the classic example given is there's a sort of positive association with things like flowers and a negative association with insects. Yeah. Of course, then there's all sorts of other associations that people make about gender, race and so on, which, yeah. you know, in cultural terms might be seen as being wrong in some yeah. way, morally wrong or ethically wrong. But the problem is that when you try, you know, so all of these, uh, the current deep learning algorithms that are trained on these corpuses of text, for example, or faces that appear on the internet are just a reflection of actually how society is. So what do you think the answer is in terms of how people should think about developing AIs Mm. to at least acknowledge that those biases exist and avoid those, you know, horrible situations where you get you know, people being classified as animals yeah, or, yeah. or women being rejected from jobs purely because of their gender. Yeah. What's the answer? Well. If that's an easy I'll question, just, right? I'll, I'll <laughs> summarize. Um, yeah. No, I think, I, I mean, it's a huge issue and there probably isn't an exact answer, but I think it's it's really interesting to raise awareness of kind of how this is influencing all of the technology that we're developing. But for example, we have that recent case that was in that was in the media about the job searching software that mm. was it was auto correcting and making suggestions for search terms about people's names so if you typed in Andrea Smith it would say did you mean Andrew Smith and mm-hmm. it was doing a lot of auto correcting for female to male names and what that was was based on the user behavior on LinkedIn i think it was mm. and what was happening is that people maybe were searching more often for male names than they were for female names so the algorithm was reflecting people's behavior Mm. but I think that maybe there's a responsibility within tech development to make sure that people's behavior that's problematic in that way needs to be flashed or it needs to be revealed back to us kind of the way that the gender tron (laughs) has been working so that we can overcome some of these unconscious ways that we're perpetuating systemic bias through the technology that we know can help flag these things for us when we're not very good at doing it ourselves. Mm. Mm. The other issue is really about biases being a reflection of the way society is. So, mm-hmm. you know, you use the example of, um, 
you know, I think it's, is it father programmer and mother home maker? Yeah. Yeah. Which to probably to, you know, for everyone today, that seems obviously an incorrect assumption. But if you were to go back 20, 30, 40 years when there were, you know, there were still programming jobs then, you know, the majority of programmers were men and Mm -hmm. the majority of people, you know, working full time were men and women's role was, was different. Mm. We're training on data that goes back that far and further yeah. because there's very little differentiation between what was written, you know, in the last six months versus the last 600 years or however long, you know, we've been able to digitize human culture. So the, the question is, the data itself that we've got historically is not wrong. It actually reflects the reality of the way, statistically, the prevailing attitudes in society. We're training AIs on that. They're influencing human culture, but we also, we need some sort of ethical or moral authority that's basically guiding how that happens rather than just regurgitating what's happened Mm. in the past. So how do we get around that problem? I mean, the answer might start with having a lot more kind of interdisciplinary approaches as well. So when you have someone who's Mm. a gender expert working with someone who's developing this technology and can point out potential pitfalls, that helps Stop mm-hmm. it in its tracks before it, it maybe comes to that point where we have people tagged mm. as and animals. That, mm. that is probably a lot of the issue is that the computer yeah. science researchers who are actually designing all these algorithms and training all the, the AI systems maybe aren't that educated. It's very like, I feel like at the moment society's maybe not so much now, but like in the last 10, 20 years, society's mm-hmm. very split up into the disciplines, right? Yeah. So computer science researchers don't really read that much literature about this kind of stuff about that stuff i mean yeah, yeah really educated I, in what they're doing and mm. they're kind of they're busy doing that yeah, and yeah so yeah. It, it makes sense that you might miss something yeah. that isn't kind of within your the problem that you're trying to solve yeah so when you have someone who does have that problem that they're trying to mm. solve working together you can mm-hmm. kind of tackle it in a different way i think i think mm. that's very true actually yeah. Mm. Yeah. i think that's a great point that yeah you know, disciplinary education just tends, like computer science is generally focused on sort of algorithms, problem solving, mm-hmm. and there's been a whole lot of implicit assumptions that have gone into how, you know, those algorithms are designed and mm-hmm. so on. And then those people go out and start working for big tech companies yeah. Yeah. and they've never been exposed to the effects of how these algorithms, particularly now that they're working on such a global scale to millions or billions of people, it, it becomes in- extremely important. Yeah. That's yeah. definitely, I think, the biggest problem today. And like, it was like the whole Silicon Valley run by white men. And yeah, just people bro and culture. People who have other interests aren't really sitting around and like, you know, programming and like writing this this kind of like training the data sets or getting really involved. I think maybe it's happening more now, but yeah. that's I think that's the biggest issue is just basically like educating everybody to like learn to program and get involved with AI. And I think that's actually huge because most people, it's happening, it's crumbling away a little bit, but Mm. um, usually I think people who are interacting with devices, they're assuming that that machine is neutral. They don't really have an understanding of what's going on and the human component behind that algorithm that is shaping kind of everything that they're doing online. Um, And so having, I know that it is something that's being taught kind of to young children now. So Mm -hmm. I think that we might see just a shift already just in terms of people's understanding of the technologies that yeah. they're using in that way. Yeah, and I think that just generally bias obviously is always there in humans and we're always going to train some kind of bias. And But the thing is with humans, it's like very dynamic and it's evolving with society really mm-hmm. quickly. But if we start, I think the problem with putting bias into AI systems is that if we start letting that infiltrate AI, 
it's much harder to actually change. And yeah. then once it becomes, as, as I guess I was going to mention, like surveillance, once it becomes like completely pervasive, like it's really, really hard to kind of change. And that having AI so present there, like making those assumptions and, and having those biases can actually like inhibit humans from evolving. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, it's so reinforcing. It's reinforcing. Stuff that we're trying completely. to leave behind, which is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think it's just like a, it needs like an intervention kind of stage where we just basically like try and address what we're actually putting in place. Because I think now is the time that it's really like, ha- like this year, last year is like the time that's really happening where like, in, I guess you've seen like China and like mm-hmm. it's, you know, probably all over America, like people are just basically putting these systems in place and mm-hmm. advertisers using them, things like that. So it's actually ca- quite dangerous. Bias is something that's always there. We can't actually remove bias from the way humans act, right? Yeah. It's, it's kind of essential for learning. Yeah. Yeah, because you make associations with things. So one of the interesting things that came out, one of the research papers I read was that people actually learn the meaning of words by the words that are close, mm. that words yeah. that are embedded the with them, words that surround them through yeah. their association. And, of course, if those biases are inherent in language of parents, they pass them on to their children because their children learn the meaning of words through that association because yeah. kids especially, because linguistically they're, they're rapidly, their brains are really tuned to, yep. to be picking up on language. And all those biases are just being passed on. That was male. Yeah. But so the other thing is, so, so a couple of people have proposed different approaches. And one of them is that the problem is if you completely remove biases from AI, then the language would become so alien yeah. that we wouldn't be able to associate with them. And this seems mm. to sort of point back to this whole, this, this huge problem that we have about AI anthropomorphizing it. Like we want it to be like us, yeah. but it's, it's not like, I mean, a, yeah. a server sitting in a room in Silicon Valley is not like a human being at all, but we still want it to have a, a female voice like Siri or a male voice. Right. We want it to look human and we want its language to be like our language, mm, yeah. but a truly unbiased AI wouldn't speak in a way that we speak. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the issue is then we want, right, so like who's developing the systems and then who's using the systems? If that's like completely different groups of people, yes. the people who are using the systems yeah. want it to be like them, right? But if only yeah. a very small subset of people are developing the systems, then that, that, that's actually where it breaks down. So I think it's just handing over that control to the people who are actually using it. Yeah, right? I think that's, yeah such a good point mm. so yeah. i think it's always going to be that it's always going to be biased in some way to reflect what we want it to reflect but i think the problem the reason that it's becoming such an issue in media and stuff is because people who are using it or like face the consequences of it right with like mm-hmm. facial recognition and stuff mm. it is trained basically to not actually see them how they see themselves or like not right. actually see them as you know complete people or, like, or yeah just not even recognize them yeah as well yeah right. um, maybe to go back to a point, Nina, that you made earlier. So the whole thing about people working in this area not being cognizant of all of these biases. Mm. So, you know, in recent years, there's been this huge push about getting women into STEM, which has almost Mm. become a cliche. And there's been some recent material published. It has been somewhat successful. So more women are getting into technical subjects now, but they often tend to choose sciences like biology and chemistry, uh, as opposed to computing and mathematics. Mm -hmm. And there are far less jobs in those areas than there are in, in IT or computing, for example you know, because IT is everywhere. So is it a good strategy? Just kind of interested in both of your views on this. Like, Mm. I think it's like affirmative action, right? Mm. I just, I think as basically, I think the intervention needs to happen when, you know, girls and boys are like quite young. And I think that just even understanding that something is possible, they they can basically like envision themselves in that role. I Mm. think that's really important. Like, I think just having role models that do that kind of thing, like, but it really is like lacking still in like representation, yeah. I would say. And it's a it's a 
two-way thing as well because we have a lot of um there's so much money and initiatives uh poured into getting women into stem Mm. not as many efforts put into young men going into traditional Mm. female um roles Mm. and i think that that i mean that comes down to the power that is in stem Mm. fields of course so you want to like make that more of an um, equal and inclusive place yeah uh but i think that to have a kind of that double attack is pretty important as well yeah and i think even just the affirmative action when you're kind of in the field when that's kind of happening it doesn't really feel great I guess to be Mm -hmm. to for that to be like a constant like thing that's being brought up where it's like it's not I guess you don't want to ignore gender completely and treat everybody like they're genderless right right but you just want it to be normal you want want it it to feel like it's not an issue yeah Yeah. I guess sometimes it's kind of like things might be easier right for me as a woman instead because people try to make more of an effort to like give me opportunities or something. And so then it's just kind of this weird, I guess for anybody who's like, a, I don't know, some kind of minority or oppressed you know, group or whatever in some kind of workplace, like you're not really sure it's what. Really imposter syndrome comes yeah, in as well. Imposter yeah. Syndrome, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's good and bad and, 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 you know, equal ways, I think. Yeah. So. It's a trans, it's a transition phase. It's not going to yeah. be day and night. Suddenly we go from unequal to equal. So it, it, yeah, mm. small steps are steps. Mm-hmm. So maybe just to finish off, Hannah, tell us about, Where's your PhD going and where do you see all this, you know, do you see it sort of blossoming into a whole series of different kind of design interventions? Yes. Yeah. So this is the Gendertron is one and that is going to be going into a lot of uh, (laughs) (laughs) interviews and documentary clips that will come out of people engaging with it and kind of what that reveals about their ability to think more critically about gender. I'm really looking forward to those. It'll probably be um, deployed into people's homes as well. So it's kind of a a more intimate intervention and then also doing some interventions about speculative design within tram systems. So um, turning a tram into a living laboratory and having some kind of speculative simple things as well, like kind of a communication campaign that might be from the near future on the tram or some instead of maybe where like the Mikey card touch in is a different kind of technology that is representing young women. And so, so it, how, do, how do you mean? Can you, can you, yeah, can you yeah. be a little bit more so, specific? Well, I not to reveal <laughs> oh, okay. um, everything about top it, secret. but uh, the there's a lot of trends going in within kind of the public transport stakeholders here about ways to address this issue to make it safer for women and uh, surveillance is a huge one. You know, mm-hmm. you'd be super interested in it, um, and kind of uh, that merging of AI and surveillance to better track yeah. perpetrators. I'm also really interested in how that will be affecting people that are not perpetrators when we yeah. have kind of pervasive surveillance on the trams. Yeah. Uh, doing some provocations around what that future would feel like, and okay. getting people to ride around and test it out and try it on in debate. Very exciting. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, well, we're out of time, but thank you so much, Hannah, for coming in and talking about your work. It's been really interesting. And thank you, Nina, as well, as always. Um, And join us for the next episode, which we'll get around to doing sometime (laughs) soon. (laughs) And um, please, if you you like um, listening, please tell other people about the podcast. And, um, of course, you can engage with us on Twitter too. Thanks very much. (laughs) Thank you. Bye.